Grace and mercy and peace be with you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Being a friend is an incredibly important responsibility. When you are a friend, you have the ability to walk with people, walk with your friends through what is oftentimes called thick and thin. With your friends, as a friend, you have the opportunity to sit with your friends during the difficult stages in life, and you have the opportunity to celebrate with them in joyous occasions. I have been blessed at all stages of my life to have a variety of different friends, and I imagine that you have as well. And what a great responsibility, what a great responsibility it is to be a friend. Because as a friend, you have the opportunity to be an incredible blessing for your friends, but you also have the possibility that you may be a cause of great distress if you friend wrong. The other day, I was typing on my computer, and I was trying to type that word friend, and I accidentally spelled it wrong, and the computer didn't underline it in red, and it didn't auto-correct it. The, I left one letter out, and it was the letter R. And I looked at that word, and I thought, fiend. I think you said, pronounce it fiend, right? And I thought, I think that means, like, opponent or enemy or evil or something. I, I, had, to, I had to look it up, and I was right. And I thought, wow, only one letter away, just one small thing away, oftentimes, from becoming a friend turning into the opposition, turning into an enemy. So just make sure you keep the R in your friendships. When I was young, uh, early elementary school days, I remember one day where my older brother, who's three years older than me, came home from school in tears. He was broken and he was distraught because he had some so-called friends who had essentially been bullying him on an ongoing basis for a number of weeks. And these were people who were in his friend group. They weren't, quote-unquote, bad kids, but they were just poking and nagging and literally physically poking and nagging, and it just got to be too much. And as a, as a young kid, I remember my brother coming home from school, and he was, he was broken, and he was distraught, and I must have been in the other room, and I overheard him talking to my mom, and my mom talking to him. And my mom, in, in encouraging him, I still remember this, she, she went to a hymn that we sing in church, and she said to my brother these words. She said, do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield you, and you will find a solace there. My mom reminded my brother that Jesus is our one true friend, that in Jesus we have a friend who is unlike any other friend, a friend who would lay down his life for us. This song, this lyric, comes from the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, if you don't know. And we will be singing that at the close of our uh, service today. What a great reminder that is to us as well. That, That Jesus is our friend. Our God that we worship is not just out there somewhere. Our God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and he is a real friend, a true friend. And in him there's true comfort, true solace, true love. 
Last week, we began this sermon series in the book of Job. The book of Job. And we will continue that study today and for the next four weeks as we continue to open up these pages and walk through the whole book. At the end of last week's sermon, we got to meet three friends of Job, and their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. All right? Uh, there, we have a member here at our church who's at the second service, and he likes to talk about the, the second guy, Bildad, a lot, uh, because supposedly uh, Bildad is the shortest guy in the Bible. Bildad, the shoe height. Is shoe, like, height, shoe height? Build it. No, you don't, you don't get it? Come on, people, build out the shoe height. That's a good joke, right? His name's Peter Pietel, if you don't know Peter. All right, so build out the shoe height. Uh, so, so here we go. We've got these three friends, and when we are introduced to them at, 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 at last week, they seem like perfectly good guys, perfectly normal guys. They had heard about the suffering of their friend Job, how he had lost all of his ten children who had died, he had lost all of his earthly possessions. He was afflicted with the skin disease. And they heard how great his suffering was. And so they came to be with him. And it says that, that they saw his suffering was so great that they just sat with him and didn't say anything for seven days. Good friends. Good friends. Job is this story of, of a so-called righteous man, at least according to worldly standards, who was afflicted greatly. Who was afflicted greatly. It's a story of this man who loved God and tried to do everything right and yet was still afflicted immensely. And as he wrestled with his affliction, he wrestled with this question. If I didn't do anything wrong, God, I, I tried to live an upright life, and if you are truly a good God and you're truly a loving God, then why have you afflicted me? This is Job's question. This is, and I'm sure you have asked that question multiple times in your own life for your own sake, but also maybe just in the sake of this world. God, if you are a loving God, if you are good, if we're trying to live upright lives, why? What's the point? My prayer for us as a church as we study this book of Job for, the, for these six weeks is that by the end that we will have a confident answer to that question. It may not be a fully reasoned out according to human reason answer, but I pray we'll have a confident answer. And it may not come just simply from today's sermon, okay? But I pray that over these six weeks you track with us and that you come back to worship. And if you miss a Sunday, check out the sermons online because this is one big story. And in the whole story, I believe we will find comfort in the end. Let me just remind you, for those of you who weren't here last week, or if you were, real quick what we learned last week about God in the first two chapters of Job. Here's what we learned. That God is God, always. And that God is good, always, and that evil exists, always, until Christ returns. And those three things always are in play in this world until Christ returns to make all things new. And because God is God, because the first one is true, if we allow him to actually be God, who will be Lord of all things, it means that he allows 
all things to happen in this world according to his ways, which are far above anything that we could ever imagine. And the important thing for us to remember when we struggle with the afflictions of this life, if it feels as though Satan is attacking you, remember this, that Satan is kept in check by God. In this story of Job, Satan does not have free reign to attack people. He does not. He does not. He has to bow at the foot of, G- at the foot of God Almighty, and therefore Satan is kept in check. He's kept in check. And the even more important thing to know is that Christ is already victorious over Satan. The enemy ultimately has no power over you. Would you let him know that? When he tries to afflict you, let him know, get away from me, Satan. You have no power. In our coverage of Job today, we're going to cover this big section from chapters 3 through 28. We're going to cover chapters 3 through 28, which in these chapters, it is essentially a theological debate. Because after sitting silently for seven days with his friends, Job starts to speak, and then his friends start to speak. It is a theological debate in which Job is honest with his friends about how he's feeling, and his friends are honest with him. Job is honest with God about how miserable he is. And he's honest about how difficult it is for him to remain faithful in in the face of all this affliction that he's going through. And he he has such a difficult time that he even, in chapter 3, right away in this dialogue, the first thing Job says when he speaks is he curses the day of his birth. He just says, maybe it would be better if I had never been born into this world. Wouldn't it just be better And yet, even with all of that, with that attitude, he still does not reject God. He still allows God to be God. He's just being honest. So Job and his friends, though, they have the same sort of um, philosophical premise, we must say, uh, in in that how they interpret how things are happening, they interpret them in the same way. And and here it is, uh, Job and his friends and ancient Israelites in general had the idea that there is what you would call a, a moral causality between physical affliction and sin, which means they thought if you sin, you will face physical affliction in equal number to your sin. So your sin directly affects your physical affliction. So you can look at it backwards too. If you're facing physical affliction, what did you do to deserve it? All right? So this is, this is how they're operating. This is how Job and his friends are operating. So when Job's friends look at Job and he's gone through all this affliction, they're looking at him and saying, Job, just be honest. What did you do to deserve this affliction? What did you do? Come on, Job. So this is the worldview they're operating from. And Job, actually, has the same sort of philosophical premise, the same theological idea. But now, as he is the one actually going through the suffering, and he's looking at his life and he's saying, I'm innocent, his wrestling becomes, how does this work out? If, if sin equals physical affliction, and physical affliction equals sin, and I didn't do anything, then, then why the affliction, God? 
Do you understand? This is their debate, so they go on and on like this. This is what Job and his friends believe, but let me be clear with you. This is not the physical uh, premise of Christian thinking. So as Christians, we do not think this way. And, and it's not just because we don't think this way. Jesus is very clear that we should not think that way. Our physical afflictions are not a direct result of our sin or our family's sin. Jesus speaks to this. Actually, it's in, our, in, in the gospel lesson from last week, if you remember. Uh, it was John chapter 9, in which Jesus healed a man who was born blind. And so the disciples of Jesus looked at this man that was born blind, and even the disciples of Jesus had that same sort of thinking as Job and his friends, because the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And what did Jesus say? Jesus answered them, it's not that this man sinned or his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus is very clear to say, the fact that he was born blind has nothing to do with his sin or his parents' sin, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, maybe you then think, okay, so did God then know from all of eternity that he would make this man be born blind and make him suffer all of his life so that a time would come when he would be healed by Jesus and then his story would be written in the scriptures and da-da-da-da-da? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know, and and I'm not going to surmise a guess about that one, but Jesus is very clear here that the physical afflictions that we face are not a direct result of our sin or a parent's sin. It just simply is a result of this broken world, and God will display his works in it. Let me say it like this in a different way. God's ways, again, God's ways are higher than our ways. His ways of operating are higher than our ways, And so I want you to know three things today, and I want you to think about these closely. Number one, we cannot always understand the why. When we're going through human suffering, when we're going through our afflictions in this life, we may not ever know the answer to the why. You know those why questions? We might not know the why. But the second point is this, we can understand who We can't understand who, and the who is Jesus. We know who God is because we know Jesus, and we know Jesus' life for us. And so that brings us to the third point. We also know what? We know that Jesus went to the cross where he died and where he rose, and he's promised that he will come again. We may not know why, but we know who, and we know what are you not satisfied with having two-thirds of your, an- your questions answered? Right? We may not always understand the why. And Job's friends, though, they want to dwell in the why. They want to dwell in the why. Why did this happen? And that, for Job, is not helpful at this point because Job's friends have their why wrong. <laughs> they have the why wrong. But that's so in our human nature, isn't it? It's so in our human nature to want to know why. We want to get into God's mind, and we want to know why he's doing what he's doing. My children oftentimes want to know the why behind my decisions when they directly affect them. When I make decisions that affect my children, oftentimes they want to know why. 
They want to know why. And so from a fatherly figure, though, I oftentimes struggle to answer the why question because I know all the things that went on in my decision-making that led me to the why, and every single one of those are bigger things than they could ever understand. And so you take all of those big things that lead me to this one simple decision, and I struggle to explain to them why. And so sometimes it's just just because, (laughs) right? Just because. Now imagine that on an eternal scale of God dealing with billions and billions of people in the entire universe. We simply cannot always understand who God is or what God is doing and why he's doing it. But we can know who and we can know what Jesus did. In this middle section of Job, chapters 3 through 28, it is 25 chapters. I don't know if you read it at home, but it is 25 chapters of deep, deep, kind of complicated Hebrew poetry in which Job and his friends talk in circles. Job's friends blame him. Job wallows in his affliction. And Job just wrestles openly and honestly with God. And he will not reject God in all of this. And I think the hardest thing for Job, I think the hardest thing for him is that he could have really benefited from Jesus. Job really could have benefited from Jesus, and and Job even makes point of this over and over again. I want to point out a couple of things for you. In chapter 9, Job laments that he does not have a mediator with God. He says this, There is no arbiter between us, between me and God, who might lay his hand on us both. Again, that might not make sense to you. The the Hebrew word there for arbiter is actually the word, like, you could translate it as like a referee or an umpire. Uh, Imagine like a boxing match where the referee comes along and puts his hand on the shoulder of one opponent and the other and brings about a final decision. That's what that that Hebrew word means. And so Job longs for there to be an arbiter, a mediator, a referee who could bring him and God to court. To bring them to court, he uses this court image, to bring them to court and to bring about a decision for how they can get along together. Job envisions Jesus He envisions Jesus. He goes on. I'll read another uh, verse here. In chapter 16, he says this. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. The one who's going to witness on on his behalf is in heaven. He who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God. That he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. So here again, he's saying, "I, I, I, I feel like there should be a witness for me in heaven by you, God, that could argue my case to you. He's longing for Jesus. Job envisions Jesus, and finally in chapter 19, he says these words which Maggie read for us. He writes these words, chapter 19, verse 23, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Well, Job, ask, and ye shall receive. Your words, Job, are recorded in the scriptures for all to see. 
And you're right, Job. Your Redeemer does live, and his name is Jesus. And you're right, Job, that your Redeemer, Jesus, did stand upon the earth. And he will stand upon the earth. And all of the things that the earth tries to throw at him, he will rise victorious over. And Job, you're, you're right. You say that in your flesh you will see God even after your flesh decays. And you're right, Job, for because your Redeemer lives, you too shall rise on the last day and see your Savior face to face. All will be made new. Job, thank you for holding on to the promises of God even when it didn't make sense. Job, thank you for boldly and honestly wrestling with God in prayer while your friends ridiculed you and tried to get you to reject him. Thank you, Job. My friends, you sitting here today, my friends, you have the opportunity to be friends to many people. And my encouragement to you this day is to take that incredible responsibility and to do it well. To be a friend and to bring Jesus into that friendship. I mentioned to you that typo I made on my computer. I'm going to put this up on the screen so you can see it. And I want to remind you, when you are a friend, to keep the R in the word friend and let that R stand for the word redeemer. Don't be a fiend to your friends. Don't be an enemy. Don't be an opposition. But let that Redeemer be present in your friendships. For that R, that Jesus, that Redeemer is the one who brings people together and the one who brings us together with God. This is the one that Job longed for and you have the opportunity to bring that presence of Christ into your friendships. So be a friend. Point your friends to Jesus. Speak about what you know. Speak about what you know. Speak about who you know. Who do you know? You know Jesus. Speak about what you know. What do you know? That he died for you, he rose for you, he's coming back to make all things new. Our Redeemer does live. Keep that R in the word friend. Keep Redeemer in your friendships. And what a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. Jesus is our Redeemer. He is our reconciler. He is our referee. He is the one who stands between us and the Almighty. He is the one on whom all of our judgment is poured out. Jesus is the one who bore the cross. He's, he's the one who suffered under Pontius Pilate. He's the one who, who was scorned by the cross and he scorned its shame. And what a friend he is, a friend who was willing to lay down his life for you and for me. So go and be friends to your friends, but bring Jesus to your friends and bring your friends to Jesus. Go in his name and in his peace. Amen. Amen.